Hello, I'm Charles Clausen, your host of the Ampex Podcast, a show where we engage in conversations with entrepreneurs and innovators whose wild ideas and exponential thinking are reshaping the universe where we live, play, and work. I believe these powerful conversations will inspire you to pursue your dreams. Welcome to Ampex Podcast. Today, we're blessed and honored to have Hannah Holman as our special guest. Hannah is an amazing musician, an amazing person, and she has unbelievable spirit and energy, which makes it very fun to have a conversation. So, Well, thank you so much for inviting me here. I, this is a great honor. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. So Hannah bounces back and forth between New York City, where she plays cello on the New York City Ballet Orchestra, That's right. and Iowa City, and she plays in orchestras and um, quartets and chamber music and all kinds of things, as well as um, a teacher for young and old. That's right. So <laughs> I will maybe let Hannah give us a, a little more overview of her background and okay um then we'll we'll dig into it sounds great so would you like to know how it all started <laughs> or well, i know it started with your grandmother when you were age five that's right very and good you um, <laughs> still have her 1925 becker cello that's right wow you read my bio good job <laughs> I, I did. so why don't we start with the beginning and you know how you got started and um Okay. I'd be happy. I love the story. I mean, it's ongoing in a way, but um, my grandmother, uh, Eleanor Thomas Holman, was born in Oregon, Illinois, which is a tiny, tiny little town on the Rock River in March 13th of 1908. And she was the only child of um, this couple that, that they ran a little grocery store in this town. And you know, I, this is like, I don't know, it's, it's deeply a part of me. So the fact that this couple, her parents, I guess that would be my great grandparents, um, reached uh, out, they, they wanted more for their daughter um, than the little town of Oregon, Illinois, maybe had to offer. They, not nothing against Oregon, Illinois, but they um, wanted, she had horse riding lessons, they sent her to Egypt, which I can't even imagine that now. Um, I've never been. <laughs> My grandmother went in like 1920 or something. I don't know how, wow. even earlier. And, um, and they encouraged the arts. And I'm sure there was no school orchestra or anything there. I, I'm, I should look into that, but I'm pretty sure. Um, they, though, because Chicago was nearby, they went to Chicago and they had um, the finest American uh, violin maker make their daughter a cello. And um, that was Carl Becker Sr. And actually that cello was um, built in 1926 for my grandmother. So let me do the math. I guess she was 18. <laughs> um, and then she went to Northwestern and she studied elementary education but she was studying also cello with somebody in the Chicago Symphony, uh, but she was not per se a music major. 
So fast forward a few decades and she, her first teaching assignment was up in the uh, upper peninsula of Michigan in Iron Mountain. And that's where she met my grandfather and uh, she was teaching elementary education. Did I mention that? <laughs> and he was also a school teacher up there. That was their first posting. And my grandfather was from the upper peninsula. His parents had come over from Cornwall to, to mine up there. Uh, but he, he was a huge, um, passionate educator and he got a chance to teach history in Jackson, Michigan. So they packed up and they moved down to Jackson and my grandmother was teaching elementary school. She had two kids, my father and my aunt. And she, uh, I don't believe she ever played in the local Jackson symphony, but she taught cello a little bit at Central Michigan University and then played in a local string quartet. So uh, both of her kids, my dad and my aunt played the cello. And I think that it was by choice because, <laughs> um, you know, hi, it's a beautiful instrument and, you know, it's kind of um, a language. And if a language is being spoken in a house, it, it just is a natural thing. Um, my dad particularly was very, very serious about the cello. And uh, he went to um, Eastman one summer, and then he started off as a music major in cello performance at the University of Michigan. Uh, his father, my grandfather, um, thought that it was all very well and fine for everybody to study cello and the arts and music. But when he came to maybe feeding a family, he did not think that it was maybe such a great profession for my, for his son, my dad to go into, um, very practical. And, you know, they're just, it was Michigan. I don't think, you know, aside from Detroit symphony and, you know, there's lots of local orchestras, but I can attest that it is very difficult to make a living as a, as a musician. So, you know, maybe something about my grandfather, uh, what he said to my dad, uh, it was true. So my dad uh, left the University of Michigan. He went to Albion College. He got his undergrad in, I don't know, he became, he, then he went back to Michigan and he was, he got his dental degree. So he practiced dentistry. He stayed in Jackson, Michigan. He met my mom. I am the oldest of four. And, you know, uh, my father, like, the cello, I think it's more, I'm gonna start crying. It's like so deeply meaningful to him and he's never said it. I don't know if he has regrets about not being a cellist. So in some ways, and I've dealt with this a little bit throughout my life at various periods, you know, I'm like, is, am I doing this for my father? Am I doing this for me? Is he living vicariously through me? And is that okay? <laughs> So these are some of the questions that, that come up. But um, anyway, I was deeply enraptured by uh, his, him practicing. He would practice when he got home from, from the office. And uh, like, like every day? Or good question. I can't remember. On a regular, he practiced a lot. He practiced often. Yeah. I, I don't know about every day, but 
often. Um, so there's lots of little pictures I can send you of, of me watching my father practice when I was pretty little. So, um, and then I, then, yeah, as I said, I have been, another sister was born four years later. And then I have a brother who's seven years younger than me. And then I have another sister who's almost 16 years younger than me. And we all play the cello <laughs> to various, you know, with various, um, for various purposes, I should say. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, I think it was decided that, okay, let's, let's have Hannah officially start the cello. So um, they found me a half-size cello, which probably by today's standards would have been too big for a five-year-old. Uh -huh. um, but I started and um, yeah, I just loved it. I just loved it. I, I went, I was studied with my grandmother. We would have lessons every Sunday afternoon. And I just remember like, um, I probably could have practiced more. It was all about the snacks. I have to say <laughs> like, grandma's for the goodies. Grandma's for the goodies. Like I remember after the lesson, she would open up the secret location where she kept all the, the naughty goodies that, um, that we never had it at our house since, especially since my dad was a dentist. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And then, I don't know, I guess I was, let me think, let me think. I was 11 and my grandmother kind of thought, by the way, there was, you know, not really there. Were, thank goodness there still is. And there was an orchestra, great string program in the Jackson public schools. And that is, super important. I'm, <laughs> we can talk about that later. Um, but, you know, so people started in fifth grade strings. And as I had started when I was five, I was maybe a little bit more ahead of them, but it was really important for me to be in this, always like in the beginning strings in junior high orchestra and in my school orchestra, because I don't know, I just, it was so fun for me to play. And I guess I loved sharing what I could by helping everybody else around me. Um, so, but by the time I was 11, my grandmother thought that I should maybe have another real teacher. So um, not that she wasn't, but, you know, maybe a more serious teacher where I might actually practice more than I was. So um, we tried out a couple there was one, well, we, I studied for a summer at the University of Michigan with the professor there named Jerome Jelinek. And, um, you were how old when you were studying with, um, Jerome? Uh, 11. Oh, so you were, I was young. young. It was a summer. I mean, it was kind of a trial thing. <laughs> I remember that first lesson. Um, I didn't know exactly what to expect. I was really nervous because, you know, that was kind of scary as an 11 year old to go and play for this professor at the University of Michigan. Um, but I went into a studio and um, he started playing something on the piano and he asked me if I knew what pitch it was. And I had no idea why he was asking me that. And I didn't. And now obviously what he was trying to do was to see if I had perfect pitch, but I didn't, so <laughs> I don't know what that means, but um, uh, it's it is a gift. But I know that it sometimes can can also be difficult. Anyway, we can talk about that later too if we want to. <laughs> um, so after that summer, where 
you know, I, I yeah, was I just it still fun playing the cello. It was were at, with a professor at a university. And it was fun. I have to say, it was a little. I, I I don't know if this is bad to say or not, but I remember that he was very, I think, you know, it was all very casual with my grandmother and we would spend like a whole afternoon together. And there was, of course, snacks. Did I men mention the snacks? Right, right. Um, and with this person, it was very businesslike. I remember he watched the clock and exactly at 60 minutes, he would go and he would pack the cello in his car and he had his rackets and he was going off to play racquetball. And I was like, huh, that's, that's uh, different. <laughs> It, it was, uh, it was in interesting. Uh, it was, he, we kind of, I could have stayed with him, but I think it was kind of discussed and another name came up of maybe somebody that I should study with. And um, now I'm going to start crying again. Um, and that was uh, Louis Potter, who was the professor emeritus at Michigan State University. And, you know, this is just where like, I, I didn't know I was going to be born into a, a cello family. And then, you know, there's so many paths in the road where you could have gone a different way. And I mean, I, I just feel to this very day, um, I'm so lucky, both for the, the um, teaching of my grandmother, which I still have all of the notebooks. So I just love looking at her handwriting and looking what, uh, reading what she was having me focus on. Um, and then to go to, to Mr. Potter was, was so great. I mean, he was, I guess, more, it was a very complete picture with him. It wasn't just cello technique, okay, goodbye, but it was like kind of teaching the whole person. And I just- So explain what that feels like when someone's teaching you as a musician to be a whole person. What does that um, feel like when you're 12 years old? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, what does that feel like? I mean, it's the, there's a personableness to it. There's a chattiness in a way. I don't know. Let me think. Let me think. Um, well, he was always peppering all of his comments with like food and politics and travel and maybe some of his other students that are like their experiences. And so it was like, very multi-dimensional it wasn't just okay so as he was teaching you were talking about a lot of other things besides cello correct religion so he made it fun you he made it. he made it very fun and it was actually i mean that's not to say that i didn't cry ever in lessons because i remember i did cry often well i don't know how often i i would cry <laughs> Once in a while. Is that because uh, Professor Potter was disappointed that you didn't meet his expectation on something? Or maybe. Marking on well, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think it was like something where I really felt like I tried and I thought I had done better. Done better, but I, yeah, he, he wasn't good enough. So it was good. But so it wasn't all like, you know, roses and, and, and flowers all and, and sunshine all the time, but it was, it, that was, all part of it too, you know, like, okay, here's the bar, like, you know, and uh, yeah, it was, I, he wrote this book called The Art of Cello Playing, and um, I have 
several of my students get it. It's, it's quite thick and heavy. So I feel badly that people have to carry it around, but um, it's so thorough and his descriptions of how he writes about some basic cello technique, it's certainly not just cut and dry. And I feel like there's imagery there that um, is very helpful to students of all ages. And I don't know, I, you know, through my, all my experiences, I, I can only say what, what works for me, but um, if it's too cut and dry, mm -hmm. I, Bored. I, I, I just feel like um, bored. I just, it loses, it loses depth and um, meaning to me. If it's like, just, it, it's like, this is not an exercise. Like this is a great art form. And, you know, we should always be striving to say something. And so, yes, we need to learn the technique to learn how to say something through our instrument. But, you know, there's quite a lot involved with that, like being in touch with yourself, like, mm -hmm. you know, and then creating your own sound, like finding one's own voice through the instrument. And, um, you know, you can have flashy technique, but for me, I'm like, <clears throat> the technique should be there to serve the music and not the other way around. <laughs> so well, his... his technique of bringing, bringing depth and breadth and meaning to mm -hmm. it um, and bringing the process of learning alive almost taught you how to be your find your authentic self and how you would express your feelings and emotions through your music that's right that's that right makes any sense? yeah no that was well put thank you <laughs> excellent yeah I mean you know again it's kind of like I don't know which came first. Like I always felt very, like I've always felt the best when I'm playing the cello, like that, um, that's like, I don't know, I'm just most myself. Um, and I feel like he helped me get there even more. Like even before I studied with him, that was a case. Like, you know, I was just so happy playing the cello. <laughs> um, and, he he helps give me the skills on the cello, but also much more than that with uh, kind of tying it to, you know, the world around me, um, the greater world that I hadn't even thought about necessarily outside of Michigan, although I had big, you know, I, I don't know, you know, um, and, and, and then of course, like the history of uh, the lineage of, of this art form that we're kind of passing down, like the great teaching and teachers of the past, the great cellists of the past, the great musicians of the past, and then of course the composers. And like, how do we give these composers their, their voice? Like we're, we're their voice now, all these composers that have passed. And so um, how do you do that to the the best of your ability. That's a, that's an interesting question, Hannah. You're, you know, they compose music, but then every artist that brings that music to the cello has their own soul and expression. Which is music. great. So you you get to recreate it and bring it to life. I mean, composers of the you feel it, feel it 
that's exactly right. See it. That's and, exactly um, right. At some point, does how you play a song depend on where you are in that moment? For sure. If you're in a, 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 a sad, sorrowful place, can that manifest very differently than if you're in a happy, energetic place? I mean, what you're feeling when you come on stage, unless you can just put everything behind you, but maybe sometimes you just want to share what you're feeling in your heart through your music in it's, that moment. It's true. That, well, again, well said. Um, you know, it's, it's a funny thing because really uh, there's going to be nuances. That's why several people have recorded, like Yo-Yo Ma has recorded the box cello suite, Bach cello suites at least three times. So it's because, you know, you come to music at different stages in your life and you have different experiences. You are older and wiser. You've experienced more. So uh, it's going to be a different version. Um, and that's not to say the early version was not also not worthy because that was, a, a, you know, fresh eyes, younger perspective, maybe. Um, and, and as a, you know, the music, if you're really like kind of plugged in to that, the music kind of carries you through what you might locally be feeling that day. On the other hand, probably, you know, you can't help but, um, but be affected by where you are, what you're going through, and that's gonna affect how you perform something. That's, that's an interesting point because when you're performing in Hampshire or you're performing in New York City, where the um, New York City Ballet performs, you have hundreds or thousands of people present. And I assume that there's often times where the collective consciousness of everyone in the hall kind of becomes one with not only the musicians, but the dancers. So you all kind of resonate at a higher frequency and vibration and things just happen in that energy in that moment that it's, it's, it's not something you thought about or you planned. It just, it's how it collectively came out. That's right. That's great. And, and obviously we want that magic every time, but there's, and, and, there is a certain magic every time that we get to do this. And I feel like the audience is a really big part of it. And we can get to this later too, but that's where this whole shutdown with COVID was really very, very, very difficult for all the performing artists because it's kind of like, oh my gosh, it's really a communication. And uh, you get the frequency and energy back from the people that you're performing for. and. <laughs> if all of a sudden you're not performing, um, it really can be, uh, um, what's the word? Um, disorienting, disorientating. <laughs> well, that's interesting to think about the mind state. And when you're used to having an audience that creates a vibration that creates magic, when the audience isn't there, and maybe it's just the orchestra in the dance company when you're being filmed, have you found a way to get into that, that magic and that greater consciousness, even though there's an 
there's not an audience there or is that a lot it's is it just so integrated that you can't separate it and create the magic without it's a great question i mean often when we're practicing and i tell my students this you want i mean so so many times we're like focused on our localized you know whatever the issue is we're working on a, a phrase in the music some technical issue but you know i always tell my students to keep an, an like the like imagine that you're playing to the audience because um we want to always be saying something uh so even if you're working on a problem like we don't want to keep it here we want to be sharing that mm -hmm. so the covid <laughs> experience was really a great exercise in trying to keep that alive and and it was really kind of like you were practicing on your own for a year and a half or two years instead of so it was like a great i had to really practice what i was preaching <laughs> like imagine that you're sharing this and of course um with thank goodness for YouTube and, and other things that we were able to share a few things, but it was, you know, not di directly. It was like delayed, which is also interesting. <laughs> right. Well, I'm not a, a religious person, but I'm a, a spiritual person and mm -hmm. I, I spend time meditating and contemplating and um, there's some great books and, and thoughts on the biology of belief. Mm -hmm. And I'm just, this might be another whole discussion <laughs> on another date, but like Joe Dispenza talks about how you um, can go into a place when you connect with the unified field and you create a higher vibration that you get out of your mind. And if you will, you close your eyes and you move into your heart. Then you start thinking about what you're grateful for and good things that you've experienced in life and you create that feeling of just um, gratitude and you think of people you love. And um, mm -hmm. then when you have that, just that immense feeling of love and gratitude, then, you know, how do you go into a place where you can just let the music flow out of your heart and your soul mm -hmm. and uplift, you know, mm -hmm people around the world. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's, it's, it's a different type of experience, but I, that's right. You know, when future pandemics come, um, people still need music mm -hmm. and need to be uplifted. It's true. It's true. Almost even more. So I did start to see how, I mean, I, I was watching, I met a lot of new friends across the globe through watching what they were doing um, on uh, during the pandemic on Facebook and YouTube and all these things. And it was very inspiring to me. So I feel like that, that helped me get through. And so I was also trying to do some other projects, which I think maybe hopefully helps some other people get through and, and um, stay connected to, to what we're doing and yourself and, <laughs> Stay grounded. Anyway, sorry, we got off on this COVID tangent, but should I no, go back to like what? We'll, we'll, come, we'll come back. Let's okay. stay on this COVID okay. for a minute because there's something I'd like to throw out there. And I don't know if you've even thought about this yet, Ooh. but we're going to start the, the okay. thought process. So with 
all the exponential technologies in the world and the way Web3 and the metaverse and sensors and all this is going. Um, at some point within the metaverse, there'll be communities of people. And I talked to Paul Kalina at the University of Iowa Theater Department about some early experimentation they're doing to bring theater into the metaverse. And, you know, in, in times of pandemic when people can't go watch uh, a performance, um, well, it's not easy and there's a lot to learn on how you create avatars and how you, you interact in a, a virtual world. But, you know, in Hancher, maybe there's 1500 people capacity, but, you know, in a metaverse type environment, you have 250 or a million people around the world that could show up for a theater production and how you engage with a virtual audience and avatars and, and, and it's, it's pretty cool to think about, but when you think about all forms of entertainment and people need community and a lot of them are gonna find it in the metaverse and mm -hmm. it's very early stage now, but mm -hmm. think about how the New York City Ballet um, finds its way into the, into the metaverse and you can take it out to millions of people in the world that are interested in you know, great dance and great music in the experience, but it's, it's a, a digital experience. It's a different world. It's not like anything yeah. that most of us can even imagine. So think about that for a moment. Yes. I did huh. work with, I did create an avatar with um, John Winnett, John. Yeah. So somebody at the university, <laughs> you can cut this part. <laughs> um, anyway. Uh, yeah. It's, you know, um, it's, it's, I guess you could say probably when records came out, mm -hmm. a lot of performers were maybe, I don't know, maybe worried that then they wouldn't need live music or they were like, oh, with my record, I could be sitting in New York, but my record will be heard across the globe. So I feel like, um, and then if, we might be at a similar but bigger thing and it, it uh, a cross point. Um, and it's, it's hard to know. Like, I mean, I will say that I've heard from lots of people that nothing replaces the human contact. And, and even in music, like they say, vinyl is the best quality of sound next to being in the room. The CDs like compress mm -hmm. the sound. And of course, over the internet, the sound, I mean, you can have great speakers, but it's just not the same as being in the same room because you're not in the same airspace. So I think um, we'll have to think about that, like, like how to create that, I think. Um, and maybe it'll be even more powerful when and more celebratory and valued when we can be physically in the same space and sharing these things in real time. Well, you raise a, a good point. And so much of um, the rapid change in the world today, there's more people with anxiety and depression than there has ever been. There's more suicides of teenagers and adults because of the, the stress and the you know, the pace of change. 
But I think when you um, when you look at the root cause, depression is not a brain disease. There's nothing wrong with the brain. What it really is is a lack of connection to other humans, mm-hmm. and it it gets worse as things speed up and you have to work two or three jobs and you don't have any time to decompress and listen to fantastic cello music. <laughs> but I think your point about the human connection and the emotions and the feelings, that's what's going to bring the metaverse to life. So whether it's your physical presence or it's your, your avatar touching 10 million people, but there will be ways to bring the emotion and the feeling. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know how it's going to happen, right. but I guarantee you it will happen. I've right. had the pleasure of seeing robotics and some of the stuff they're doing in virtual reality and augmented reality, and it's in the early stages, but it's coming. And it blows you away when you see what they're doing and think about what's possible. So just hold that thought. I will. Of how you can <laughs> take the... Um, the emotion and the feeling and it's really how you bring the soul yeah of your authentic self into the metaphors and how you express yourself and share yourself like you do in a concert right and um so create, that create that the magic because it will be done yeah that's really i don't know point. how it might take 20 years but it's it's um it's coming it's exciting to think about and slightly daunting, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think the the main thing will be, you know, they say that social media is uh, not good for people with depression because you know you're always comparing yourself and then you can spiral. And so, I think that yeah, that that'll that's going to be. If you're talking about the Facebooks and those Facebooks kind of things where and, you just are consumed by it, and it's right. all about creating. Right. Artificial. Right. So I can authentic self. You're trying to be something to someone else and create a perception of yeah, you know, something that you're not, and you lose your your soul and your heart in the process. I'm sure that there's a lot of fabulously smart and creative people that are working on this, but I'm just worried about you know, yes, as you said, like the individual that feels so kind of isolated and and uh and cut off and and i you know the more you stay home uh unless we come up with some way to like feel like you're giving everybody a big hug in the metaverse um i don't even know what i mean yeah, when well, I there's, say there's so much there's so many ethical and moral issues and um with social media and i mean it, it's doesn't help a lot of young minds grow and mature and develop like mm-hmm. playing the piano playing instruments getting outside um, like when we were kids and playing football or baseball or hide and seek you know play is important today so many kids are robbed to play and they're put in all these structured environments but they don't ever just to get get to go out and play like when you were young you went to your grandmother's on sunday and you played right. the cello but right. it sounded like it was a lot more play than it was super structured discipline in the early days it's just let's get together and have fun and let's have some really good treats some good <laughs> sugar that's right and you, 
remember those, but I, I, it's technology has, it's kind of like a double-edged sword. Right. And there's, there's issues both ways. So mm -hmm. it can be used for good. Right. And it can also create havoc and more chaos in the world. I mean, I have to say that I was really grateful for a lot of, I mean, I had never heard of Zoom before, <laughs> before uh, April, 2020 or March, I guess. Maybe March was the first time I heard about it. Um, but, you know, the New York City Ballet was shut down for, um, well, we missed our spring season of 2020 and then all of 2020 and 2021, we were out of no work. Um, so I took on a couple of teaching positions and uh, one was at the Biola Conservatory in La Mirada, California. And I had five amazing cellists from all over the world there, but I never went until last spring. So for two years, I taught them all on Zoom. And though the sound I is really kind of, can be kind of cringing, you know, there was still a connection with these people. And actually um, the first year, 2020, 2021 that I was teaching there. I taught there for two years. Um, one girl was in Beijing and another boy named Brahms <laughs> was in Indonesia. And so, you know, we would plan our clocks and get up and, or stay up late or, or whichever. Um, and, you know, the, the, it really, I felt like it was very important for me as well as for them to have this connection through the cello, through music, through friendship. And it was like mind boggling that we could do it across, you know, these continents. Yeah. yeah. You know, one of the, the aspects of, of music and especially the cello is it's incredibly healing. Mm -hmm. My wife has had three brain traumas. You know, she went off a mountain in Colorado on the back of a motorcycle. She was pummeled in a coral reef in Hawaii. Then she had a bicycle hit her from behind at 25 miles an hour. So these were, you know, brain traumas. And I don't know what she would have done without the cello. It was the only thing that helped bring peace and calm to her mind as she, you know, healed from these, these traumatic injuries. And um, it's, it's a very calming instrument, unless you're playing Bartok string quartet or something <laughs> but um you know partially it's like well you it's like you're giving it a hug because you have to hold it so close and it's like on your heart you hold it against your heart you can feel the vibrations throughout your whole body and so i mean i i think it is a really healing uh instrument as as well as just being beautiful beautiful <laughs> well you're you're working on a, a project um, going back in time and taking different female artisans and recreating their music and bringing it to life again. Do you want to tell us about that? Sure. I have a couple of different strains of this project. So well, let's go through them all. Okay. Well, one strain is um, I have this YouTube series that I started pre-pandemic called Influential Female Cellists. And 
that was inspired in large part from by my grandmother, um, who was born in 1908, as I mentioned. And, you know, I just feel like it's still hard <laughs> to make it as a, you know, to be a professional cellist as a female in 2022. And so at several points in my 52 years, <laughs> I've looked back and thought, wow, like it's really kind of blown my mind that my grandmother played the cello being born in 1908. So that kind of piqued my interest for discovering some of these other pioneering ladies of the past, um, these pioneering cellists. And um, I found great inspiration from reading their stories. And I just have wanted to pass that along. So that, that's been a really fun project for me. We, we've done nine so far. And uh, the person that, that helps me now has a full-time teaching job in the Quad City. So, and we've both gotten a little bit busy, but I intend to get back to it. And I have my list of women that I'd love to, to talk about is at least 50. <laughs> wow. So there's that many influential women in primarily cello players? Or? Well, I'm just solely focused on cello because um, cello especially was considered very unladylike because you hold it between your knees. Mm -hmm. And so it was not polite <laughs> for women of, you know, even up till... I don't know, the 1920s, 30s, to hold the cello properly. So women had to hold the cello. This is in episode one. Anybody that wants to check it out. Women had, the hold, had to hold the cello side saddle. So you couldn't really hold the cello. So the cello would be so kind you're, of... You're actually well, you have to like kind of put your knees, like you, you can imagine a saddle. You right. know, where you sit side saddle on the saddle. So you have both knees on one side of the saddle. So you had to have both knees usually on the left side and then the cello would be on the right. But, you know, if you bow, it's like eating on a table with a wobbly leg. Like, you know, it's not a firm surf surface at all. Right. And so women were really at a disadvantage because the cello was like, you didn't have a firm hold of it. Oh, wow. Wow. Oops, I just bumped the microphone, sorry. No, right. Or the other version was you could kneel. And so you had a little step stool and you could have one knee down on the step stool. But still, you didn't have a firm grip of the cello. Who made these rules? Well, I mean, it was just very, I mean, it was like society at that time. Right. Ladies did not... <laughs> play the cello ladies did not put anything between their knees at that time you know um they could play the piano that was very polite mm -hmm. society was fine with that they could play the violin it was all very nice and fine but cello that was really whatever so i've really loved reading about these women that kind of were trailblazers and and like no, cello is a female instrument too. And, um, you know, and, and often they had strong support from their family and uh, their fathers. So that, that kind of, you know. So strong father figures made it possible for a lot of women to do these things that might not have 
I'm thinking of one woman in particular. I think she was the last episode that I did, but she was Portuguese and her name was Guillermina Sugia. And um, her father was also a cellist. And so he was very uh, um, encouraging of her. And I think he even like, when it was, there was another thing that really helped women, I think, and that is that uh, the, the cello, for those of you who don't know, have a little pin that sticks out of the bottom of it and it's called an end pin and it secures the cello to the floor. Um, but without that, like the cello had to be kind of held in the calves. And so it was also like not really stable, but um, there was, I mean, now it's absolutely standard unless you play the viola da gamba, which is a totally another instrument. Mm -hmm. um, but for cellists, you use an end pin. Like you wouldn't even think about like not having an end pin. But uh, it was not necessarily a given a uh, hundred years ago. And so Guillermina Sugia's father um, said, okay, you're going to play the cello this way. We're going to use an end pin and this is fine. This is normal. Uh, but, and so, you know, there was just a few people along the way that, that really made a difference to where we are today, which is still. So people had courage to buck the rules that society or the society's beliefs and what they turn their, that's right. Their eyes up to. I mean, yeah, this is really, uh, you know, a, a big, deep research project and I might have to go to Europe to do some more research on this eventually. Sounds that's like what I'm, I'm hoping. Absolutely. But um, yeah, there's a few, I've done what I have could from here in Iowa and thanks to the internet. And, and I've actually, there was um, a few women, actually I interviewed one woman that I sat with in the Jackson Symphony when I was in high school. And her name was Winifred Mays. And I knew that um, she was kind of a big deal, but she was just a sweet older lady. Mm -hmm. And so I, it didn't really, again, dawn on me what, what she represented. Um, but when I was making this list, she was on my list. And then I realized like, wait, I know her. And I could not find a date of death. So I tracked her down and she was still alive. Wow. She was 99 and I was able to do an interview with her. And um, it was- This is one of your podcasts? Yeah, it's on, it's on the YouTube, yeah. So what's, and uh, then she what's your YouTube channel? Let's get that in so our guests know the name of it and where okay. they can find this. I, um, I think if you just Google my name, it should come up, but- So if you go to your website, um, hannahcolemancello.com, yeah. that'll take a link to the yeah. YouTube channel yeah. as well. Yeah. Well, we can put some banner. Yeah, that'd know, be great. At, Thank at you. At the end of one of the sections, so okay. our, our guests can find this this YouTube series on great cellist of female cellist of the early years. I, ha I haven't I haven't reviewed my notes lately, but Winifred was the first woman to uh, play in the string section of the Boston Symphony, and that that's pretty big deal. She was from Jackson, Michigan. She was not from Jackson. She, um, it's a long winding story how okay. she ended up in Ann Arbor actually, but then she would come to Jackson to play Okay. in her retirement, but she, she grew up in the, on the West coast and, um, her mom, again, it wasn't even thought of that she would be a professional 
cellist or like you know the the professions that women did of that time were secretary and teacher and so I think she I again I'd have to re-watch my video um but I think she started off in in the community college but she you know she had she, a she had could play the cello and her mother saw that the Curtis Institute in Philadelphia was free if you got in so um, she encouraged her daughter to get it to, to try and she got in and, and talking to her, she's so humble. She was like, you know, I mean, it was, she was just the most, she was like, I'm nothing extraordinary. I don't even know why you're interviewing me. And, but you know, like if you take her life and then like you, you look at what she accomplished. She, she was a groundbreaker. She was, um, assistant principal cellist of Philadelphia Orchestra for a long time, which is, there's still very few principal female cellists of major symphonies. So um, actually when she passed away, the Boston Globe and the Strad Magazine quoted my, uh, uh, YouTube, uh, my YouTube video about her. So your YouTube, do you talk about their lives and what they did and do you play some of their music as well? Well, they didn't actually compose, actually only one of them actually composed, but I, it's again, been a fun project for me because um, for those of you who don't know, and I wouldn't expect that you would, because even a lot of musicians don't know, the New York City Ballet has seasons. So uh, we have a four week fall season from mid September to mid October and then a six week nutcracker season from Thanksgiving till January 1st, approximately. But like between those, there's six weeks. And um, I have joint custody of my son. So for 11 years, I've been commuting from New York back to Iowa City when the ballet is out of season. So um, before I've started some of my other projects like teaching and starting a school and <laughs> all of that stuff, I, well, it was, this was a really great project for me. And, and to be honest with you, it started because one summer I had a little extra time here in Iowa City and I took a summer uh, writer's workshop because, you know, I, I, Iowa City is known for its writer's workshop. And I was like, I, I can't be in Iowa City for 20 years and never have taken a writing class. And I have to say, I'm not a writer at all, but that started this whole thing because I was like, I want to write a book, like a chapter on each of these women. And so I started and, um, but, you know, it, I realized it was going to take a lot more time than I actually had. And I kind of like, I wanted to, I, I thought that actually video would reach more people than a, a book that might sit on somebody's shelf. Right. And so I thought like to get, it was also more interactive for me because Part of the project was for me researching these women and you know interviewing people uh, or reading as much as I could. Plus, there's usually one piece that I like to find that kind of best represents this one woman. So then I would perform that piece in the background. Mm -hmm. um, so that's also like it kept me practicing. <laughs> I kept my plane chops up. <laughs> so how many of the 50 women have you? Nine. Nine. So I have a lot to go. Down. Yeah. Wow. Well, that'll keep you busy for a few more decades. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Better get going. With all your, your other projects. Yeah. 
but it's been, it's been really great. It's that I, and what's very cool is that I know that um, this has helped a lot of my female students, especially one of my students, because a lot of these women happen to be British, she wanted to go and study in London. And, um, and so she actually went and auditioned at London uh, at the Royal uh, College of Music. At this point, she did not get in, but you know, she was reaching and that's what I love to see. She named one of her cats Amaryllis after one of the, <laughs> after one of the um, women that, that I profiled. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I could, I, I know that um, it, it's, you know, it's helpful because sometimes like, again, I feel like I'm the biggest cello geek I know in a way almost. Um, and a lot of these women I didn't know about. So it, I was like, if I don't know about them, then probably many other people don't know about them either. So I just wanted to share what yeah, I was. These amazing women artists who went before that were standing that on the back. And so you're um, bringing life back to them and inspiring younger women uh, to pursue their dreams and go after things that are a bit of a stretch maybe, but it, if you never try, you're never going to get there. So that's, that's, you know, that's exciting. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, just that, yeah, if you don't try, you're not going to get there. So go ahead, try. And like, um, yeah, that I, I always love to encourage everybody. You have to try, <laughs> you have to keep going for it. And, and it's like, okay, if you don't get it on the first time, that doesn't mean anything we'll get it on the third or the fifth or the eighth or, or the 80th yeah. <laughs> so yeah you have to dig deep sometimes like anything that's really that that that, that if you're tied in true true to your core of what you believe in you know i think often part of maybe even this depression and loneliness is people give up on uh and they don't maybe have the support system that they need uh to help them you know, keep pursuing. It does. It is exhausting. <laughs> yeah, they give up on themselves and they right. just stop trying. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's unfortunate. Yeah. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, oh, the other aspect of this, uh, but this project is, I am fortunate enough to play with uh, one of the full uh, piano professors here at the University of Iowa, Rainy Lacuona, and. Um, I'm just making sure I said her last name right. She, she was always like Laquana, like Iguana. So see, I didn't pronounce her last name right. Rainy Laquana. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she and I have been a partnership for about 18 years. And again, this has been really great for me when I come back to Iowa City to be able to create music with her. Um, we had two CDs out previously. And our latest project, which is in post-production, is our third CD, which is featuring the music of women composers from 100 years ago. So kind of it goes hand in hand with my little cello <laughs> project. But we dug out three really juicy romantic, um, uh, like late romantic sonatas um, of Ethel Smythe, Henrietta Bosman's, and Dora Pejacevic. Um, Dora is Croatian, Henrietta was uh, 
uh, Dutch and Ethel Smythe was British. And um, it was all very late romantic, very tuneful. And, um, and, and again, we, we got a grant from the University of Iowa to record this project because there's hardly any recordings of these sonatas, let alone in one collection. So, um, I mean, actually we could do many more recordings, so we'll just see. <laughs> we'll see how this one goes once it's done. <laughs> so who does your recordings? Does the university have a sound studio that does recordings or? Yes. Um, well, our first two CDs we did with um, Blue Griffin uh, label, and that was an old friend of mine named Sergei Kvitko, who lives in Michigan, and he had a studio in his house. And um, we went and we recorded there, and he edited it and produced it and put it out on his label. But, you know, it's a little inconvenient to get to Michigan always. And right. he was amazing. I, I, I love Sergey, but for this project, we thought maybe we should try doing it here. Um, we both love performing in that new recital hall at the University of Iowa, mm -hmm. um, the little red room. And uh, they have a whole stable of amazing Steinway pianos to choose from. So uh, we thought we'd do it here. And, and we have, there's a great recording engineer on the faculty, at, or I guess he's on staff at the University of Iowa, James Adele, and a whole team of, of his. And um, I don't know, you might want to cut what I'm about to say, but I was like, what I did not realize when we went into this project was that we were going to be self-producing it. And that was, um, yeah, that, that's, it's, it, that's added a whole new layer of things. Dimension. I, I understand. I'm trying to self-produce. <laughs> it's <laughs> a, hard. A, a YouTube channel. Well, I have a production crew and right. getting digital marketing people, but it takes a team and it's, I can ask questions and I can talk a lot, but um, when it all yeah. comes to a final product, it takes a team of it people. Takes, and right, right, and a lot of time. And so I'm so grateful. Uh, Rainey hired one of her former students, Douglas Baker, to kind of be our producer. So bless his heart, he was like learning on the job and he was putting together edits for us to listen to. And now once we kind of collect the final version, um, so we recorded in the recital hall uh, and then we'll send it to back to James and he'll kind of do a master and then we send it off to the CD company because CDs are still being made, believe it or not, even though most people don't have CD players. You, know, you, you ought to figure out how to download the individual songs onto iTunes. Well, exactly. They will be. They'll be on Spotify and iTunes and Apple Music, all of that. They'll be there. <laughs> well that's exciting so they can also find out about these from your website yes anacolmancello.com yep Don't that's forget. right very good <laughs> go check it that's out that's right <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for the plug you know i actually i have to say like my my uh website <clears throat> i started it when i knew that the maya quartet was going to be ending here at the university of iowa and i knew i needed um, to have my own kind of identity out there in the world, because I didn't know that at that point that I was going to have the fabulous job of the New York City Ballet. So I wanted someplace where people could find me. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I started that in 2012. And I was pretty good about posting and I had, I have um, a helper with the website. <clears throat> but then 
pandemic, no concerts. And then uh, for some reason, you know, we thought it was good timing to start this music school in, in Davenport. And I've been putting all of my focus and attention into that website and that uh, project. So um, my own website was totally neglected and it had like nothing <laughs> on there since pre uh, 2020. So I've recently fixed that. <laughs> so tell us about this project. You've got a, a new music school, you're founding, starting down in the, the Quad Cities. That's um, right. What's going on? Well, let's see. I mean, I first came to Iowa in 2001 and we don't need to go into all, whoops, I keep hitting the microphone. I should stop being so Italian with my gestures. <laughs> I'm not Italian. Um, uh, and let's see, I joined, I joined Quad City Symphony as a section member in 2001. And I was principal of Orchestra Iowa at that time too, in 2001. And then, you know, the Maya Quartet started getting busy. I had a child, I resigned from my section spot in, in Quad City Symphony. And then I saw that one of my beloved favorite conductors was uh, auditioning for the conductor job at Quad Cities. And he, he's a cellist too, Mark Russell Smith. And so, and right at that time, the former principal cellist of Quad City Symphony retired, Charles Went, who had been the uh, cello professor here at the University of Iowa. So, Again, like I've taken, I, I'm not kidding you guys, like I have taken probably at least a hundred auditions. So the jobs that I have are the few that I've won, <laughs> but that's like a very small percentage out of all of the auditions I've taken. Um, but hopefully I've learned something from each one I've taken and I'm still at my ripe old age of 52 taking auditions. <laughs> um, but anyway, I took the audition for principal cello of Quad City Symphony in 2008 and got it. I got the job and it's, I'm, I'm still principal there. And it's, um, it's amazing it, that community is really, really so supportive of the symphony. And, and I love working with Mark Russell Smith and, and I think he's really built up a great, fantastic sounding orchestra. So I encourage everybody to go hear the Quad City Symphony. Um, but, you know, I would, you know, over the last, I've been now in Iowa coming up to my 21st year. So over my 21 years here, um, the, the, there's been a lot of the students from the Quad Cities, if they wanted to get into Iowa Allstate, they needed to, uh, they would be sent to me here in Iowa City. And, um, there's a lot of great teaching going on in the Quad Cities, but you know, I, I don't know. The, we have the Prusel School here in Iowa City, and they start the kids really young, and it's very hard for other communities to um, compete. compete with that. So it's always been in the back of my mind that the Quad Cities needed like really high quality institution or school where. Um, parents wouldn't have to drive their students to Iowa City or to Chicago, which has been happening to, to get, to be able to get, I don't know, to be competitive enough, you know, to get into Juilliard or to get into um, Iowa Allstate. Um, and not that it's about that either. Like that, that's not my full 
idea in this school, but I'll get to that uh, in a minute. But so, uh, you know, when the Maya Quartet ended in 2012, or actually slightly before, I had always had this thought like, well, this is something I could do right here in Iowa is, is create the school. And then the ballet job happened. <laughs> and I was like, well, yeah, that still needs to happen in the Quad Cities, but bye, I'm going to New York. <laughs> so, but, you know, I, again, I've been commuting for 11 years now and the need I've noticed has not gone away. So after a Quad City Symphony Masterworks, they have these fabulous things called afterglows at the Blackhawk Hotel in Davenport. And I was speaking to some woman named Stephanie Green, um, who I'd never met before, but she had grown up in Davenport and now she is uh, Episcopal minister in Berkeley, California. So we started talking and, you know, she was learning about me and I was telling her that, yeah, I, one of my dreams is to have a music school for the students here in, in the Quad Cities. That was probably in March or April of 2018. And um, I kind of actually forgot that I had told her that. And then in maybe June or July of 2018, she wrote me this huge long email saying, Hannah, I've been thinking a lot about what you said and uh, I have the perfect building for you. So I was like, okay. So I went over and looked at this building uh, in August of 2018. And really, you know, I kind of felt like I had enough on my plate between my Quad City Symphony life, New York City Ballet life, oh, and being a mom and everything else. But when I went into this building, I was like, oh, it was so gorgeous. And um, I couldn't stop thinking or talking about it. So it was kind of like this black hole that kind of, I mean, not black hole in a bad way, but it was like this kind of thing that just kept pulling me in. Mm -hmm. um, and what it was, it was the Dean's residence uh, as part of the Trinity Episcopal Cathedral campus on da in Davenport, um, right by Palmer College of Chiropractic and right across the street from Davenport Central High School. And this Dean's residence was, is really a mansion of six large bedrooms upstairs. And it had been empty for 11 years because the Dean's wife didn't want to live there anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so the cathedral uh, congregation was struggling with what to do with this building. And um, half of the congregation wanted to knock it down because they were keeping on life support, but it was empty. And then the other half were trying to find some repurpose for it. Mm -hmm. So there was talk of like, it may be housing some people at uh, St. Ambrose, some of the students, but they hadn't really found the right fit. Mm -hmm. So when I went in there that day and I encourage everybody to come and walk in this building, in, in the door of this building, there's this grand staircase that like, you can't help but look up. And it's just so uplifting and so inspiring. And I just know that a lot of the kids have, you know, if they've, they've gotten some lessons, thank goodness, but it's been, you know, kind of sporadic and kind of where they are, which is also good. But I was like, everybody deserves to feel uplifted and, mm -hmm. and united as they come through these doors. And um, so 
I gathered some dear friends and we started our own 501c3. And we just, we've actually through grants and, and generous donations, we've raised a quarter of a million dollars. And, and we got the building uh, renovated, past inspection, we had to put, um, you know, handicap uh, bathroom in downstairs and um, so did you have to buy the building or did the church give it to you and then you just have to fix it up? The, the church it? is leasing it to us for we're on a 15 year lease. And let's just say it's a very, very good deal. Uh -huh. um, but it, it was on our backs to do the renovation in exchange for, for this lease. So um, we're in there for 15 years. Has there been a lot of support from the community or are a they lot. Still learning about it? No, well, I mean, there was a lot from the, the cathedral congregation, actually. And we have a couple of our board members are members of the congregation because, you know, there's a strong link between the arts. And like, if you look at the Episcopal church in England, uh, they usually have um, a school associated with the cathedrals and uh, specifically, um, a lot of choristers, they have a, a, choral, mm -hmm. a choir tradition. Um, and so in this case, it's a little bit more of a string uh, instrument tradition at this moment, but you know, who knows where this direction will go, but there was a lot, lot of support from the congregation and, and it's word is getting out, but it's, it's a little bit slow, but, uh, we're getting there. So what's what's the scope of your big dream? Where do you see this ending up? What you know, what would be the impact? How many students would you touch and that's a great question. And I think it's uh open-ended at this stage. You know, one of the things that um why the building was empty was because the dean's wife was nervous to live in there because it's a little bit of a rougher neighborhood. And that's exactly what I think the beauty of music can do is transport uh, and, and transcend neighborhoods and socioeconomic differences. Um, and that's where I really feel like the, my bigger idea for this school exists. Like, yes, I want the um, students that come out of there to be um, can I say kick ass? <laughs> really, you know, being amazing uh, uh, artists. But more than that, I want people from all over the Quad Cities to feel like they have a place where they can connect with other people that are not necessarily like them, that are not necessarily um, from their same backgrounds. And uh, what I've seen is that, you know, there's there's a great divide. And right now in classical music, it feels like there's, there's several institutions that are helping fix that. But, um, you know, of course, if you can afford to have your kids have music lessons from the age of five, you're going to be far ahead of the kids that are lucky enough to take it in junior high or uh, elementary school when, when your public school district offers it. So um, I guess my, my greater mission would be to have a, a place where people can come together through music of all 
backgrounds. And I realized that, um, you know, the Quad Cities is a community of over 500,000 people and there was no music school there. So that was step number one. But step number two is like reaching the people in this neighborhood right nearby that, that if we can help them gain skills, gain um, confidence in themselves, find their voices through music. Um, and, and, you know, make it, I don't know, I'm, I feel like I'm babbling. Um, <laughs> make it a place where people can, can all dream together. So this is right across the street or next to the cathedral, the Episcopal yeah. Cathedral. Yes. And that's still an active cathedral, yes. right? It's yes. And they've been super generous with us about letting us use, they have a great hall. So we've been able to do concerts over there with a beautiful Steinway. Uh, they've said that we could use the cathedral. We had um, the International Cello Institute come this summer and they were in residence. And it was about six um, direct, uh, directors and staff that were here, rotating artists from all over the country came and gave recitals in Davenport. And, uh, and then we had 10 students from all over the world come to Davenport. There were two from Germany, one from South America and one from Canada. And I was not able to be there for the opening day because I was finishing up um, the, the Saratoga season with the New York City Ballet, but it was being streamed that first concert. So my son was driving. I tuned into the live stream as I was driving from Saratoga Springs to Iowa. And there was Beyond Sang from Austin, Texas, great famous cellist playing a recital in Davenport at, at, through the deanery and our partnership with the International Cello Institute. And I was like, oh, I can't believe this is happening. That's, that's fantastic. So you, you mentioned Charles Wynn. Is he still alive? No, Charles passed away. Because that brings up an old memory. So back in the late 70s, my brother, Eric, played cello okay i didn't charles know that went, I, if i knew that i forgot i'm sorry that was um so charles went was his teacher and he um he was first team all state in the cello he was also first team all state as a defensive end and he was also the state heavyweight wrestling champion wow so he went on to michigan to be a two-time big 10 heavyweight wrestling wrestling champion but oh wow the, the that's music cool. is still with him today See? <laughs> um, and so that I know, I mean, a lot of high school football players probably think it's not cool. Well, I should play a cello or a violin, but my, my other brother played the violin and he was, he wrestled at Duke. Oh, so, that's great. You know, athletes can. My brother played, um, my brother plays the cello still, and he was also on his high school football, tennis and wrestling team. So my brother and your Brothers. I remember Doris Prusel from way back in the late 70s because all my brothers played cello and violin. Right, was the only right. Oddball. Right. <laughs> so, but it was, um, those bring back memories. And, but those, those are still with them today. Yeah. And um, it's, it's a beautiful thing. So it's beautiful. Um, if people are interested in donating to the, what do you call the school? It's the Deanery School of Music. Um, they can go to the hannahholman.com. <laughs> And find their way to the 501c3 and make a donation. Well, let me let me back up because I think we've actually been saying the wrong website this whole time, and I'm sorry, I'm just now well, catching I kept it. Han 
hannahholmancello.com. That's right. That it's hannahholmancello.com. But um, the deanery has its own website. It's the deaneryschoolofmusic.com and there's a donate button on, on the website. So how'd you come up with the deanery? Well, it has something to do with- Well, it was the dean's residence. So that's what they called it is the deanery. And I thought it's a beautiful um, kind of tribute to the building to keep it like that. I mean, to be honest with you, we weren't sure that the lease and all of that was the paperwork was going to go through. So when we first started uh, online, before we had access to the building, we were the Quad City Music Academy. Okay. And that was a fine name. But again, maybe it's just my imagination, but I feel like the deanery um, has a little bit more magic about it. Yeah, I, I like it. I, I... I had no idea what a deanery was. So that's the place where the, it's the like, head um, bishop would live with his wife and family. Correct, so, correct. So he's referred to as the, the dean. dean. Right, it's like in other churches, it would be the deacon or the... Well, they're not a bishop or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, no. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not up to date <laughs> on religious matters. No, I, I yeah, in the in the... Episcopal Cathedral, it's the dean. Okay, well, that's that's a it's like the rector of you know a beautiful story. So, are you teaching lessons in the deanery or are I am students there now? I yes, know. there are. We have, I at last count, I'd say we have about 50 weekly students. 50. 50. We have um, a whole, if people are interested, they can go to the website and check out our faculty. Um, we've got a great team of faculty and uh. And, you know, again, this was started getting back to kind of um, how internet can help or not. You know, this was started when we were not allowed to meet in person. So we, this was all started online. So I asked a lot of my colleagues in the Quad Cities Symphony if they would be on our, our faculty, thinking that for the most part, students could have online lessons. But then when these, people came to play in the Quad City Symphony, they could have an in-person lesson. So like three weeks online, one week in person. The reality is that it was almost all online completely. Mm -hmm. And now I think people are really tired of online lessons if it's possible to have in-person lessons. So- um, Are the staff supporting are the, the people that are teaching the lessons? So people in, in are- People are teaching lessons in the building. Wow. And it's really, really inspiring for me. And I'll have to tell you a little story. Like just as recently as uh, Saturday, I was over there um, because we had a, a violin all-state workshop for the Iowa violin students. And one of our faculty members, Sabrina Tabby, was working with these seven students. That was wonderful. And then with Quad City Symphony, we had this guitar quintet uh, concert yesterday in the Quad Cities, but we needed a place to rehearse. And uh, River Music Experience was double booked. So I said, why don't we rehearse in the deanery? So, and, and there's a performance space downstairs. It was the old living room. We have a beautiful, rare Blutner uh, grand piano in that performance space. And the acoustics in there are magic. It's it's really, really, I've, I've made a couple of recordings in there and I've had good luck with every recording I've made. I've gotten into what I, what I sent it off to, for. So that's a pretty good track record. But um, anyway, we were rehearsing in the afternoon 
And the Viola Allstate workshop was happening upstairs in the Viola um, teaching room. And at some point they took a break and they came down and they just sat there and listened to us. And, you know, this is what I want. I want the, the, the people of the, the students of the Quad Cities to be inspired and, and there to be more opportunities like this for them to hear us working. Like it doesn't, it's not always just a concert, like, but for them to watch us right. rehearse and see how that process works. And it's not just like, boom, it's perfect. <laughs> So what, what, what's next? What's your next big dream, Hannah? You've got a lot of projects that are percolating dec decades in the works and you've got this new school, which is very exciting. And, you know, what, what else are you thinking about? That's a great question. Um, lots of things, lots of things. I'm thinking of, a, I'm wondering what my next chapter is, to be honest with you, because I feel like you know, my son is now a senior in high school. So I am, I'm going to be a little bit freer, I think, especially in the windows of New York City Ballet. So that means um, maybe more time in New York City, more time internationally. Um, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, you could read my mind very well. Like I, one of the things I value so much about this profession is being able to travel and being able to make music um, with other people. Like it was just so fun yesterday to play chamber music with um, these, my friends and this guitarist whom I never had met before, but now we're friends. And um, I would just love to have a chance to explore that more. Well, I noticed in a, a younger day, you, you played in Birmingham and England and some other places. So um... And I, I, I do, I haven't had a chance to explore much of the freelance scene in New York. Uh -huh. And I, and I really do value all my time spent in Europe because after all, a lot of what we do comes from there. And um, I, I know, I, I think at some point you were, I, I was supposed to tell you one of my most meaningful um, experiences. And it was, uh, I was just out of my master's degree from New England Conservatory in Boston, and I was living in England. And I got, I was a member of the English, well, I was a sub, sorry. I was playing with the English String Orchestra and we got to go on tour with the great Sir Yehudi Menuhin conducting. And we went, this was, would have been 90, 93, 94, yeah. So a long time ago, but um, we went on tour to Germany, but the wall had come down not that long before. So we were mostly on the Eastern side of Germany and it was, I mean, I'll, I'll just never forget. And I deeply treasure and hold it right here. And this is what I'm hoping to share by my music and by my teaching and all of that, but how, much those people it meant to them that we were there and especially that Yehudi Menuhin was there and I mean we played at the Leipzig Gewandhaus, House big famous hall you know really like one of the most famous uh, venues in the world and when Yehudi came out they gave him a 15 minute just standing ovation I had never experienced anything like that before. You know, I was 
felt like, you know, I played for very appreciative audiences here in this country, but the depth of how I, I was like, wow, this really means a lot to these people. And, uh, and then afterwards it was like, you know, half an hour, so many callbacks and, um, and then we went from town to town and there was this man that would come forward to the stage. He followed us uh, and he would come and I don't know how he, he would bring like weeds cause that was all, he was collecting them along the side of the road and he would bring them and- So he would give you an offering of greenery instead of flowers that he collected along the road just in appreciation for what he could give even though he had nothing but he found a way to follow you around Germany. That's exactly that's, right. That's beautiful. Yeah, it was really, that was, that, you know, uh, I love this country and I love seeing how much, uh, you know, we, we just don't have the deep uh, centuries and centuries tradition of- That they have in Europe. Of, that they have in Europe. And, um, and, and it's great here, the freedom and the, the innovation and all of that is fantastic. But I do think that it's really important for as much as possible for students of this art form to kind of know where we've come from. And I mean, that would be one of the things I would hope for the deaneries to bring have in international musicians, bring in international and actually have them travel oh, to do that a would be great kind yeah. of exchange program. Yeah. Did you have a chance to perform at all in Berlin? I have performed in Berlin, yeah. It's got a great we, energy, doesn't it? It does, and I, to be honest with you, I have not been there in too long, and I need to fix that. Wow, oh, I love I'm, Berlin. I'm working on that. It's been, it's been at least 20 years since I've been there, and I have a lot of dear friends there, so I need to go because it's changed a lot since I've been there. I know. So, yeah. Well, this has been great, Hannah. In closing, I'm going to ask you one question. So, Hannah and I are both. Um, foodies <laughs> so you know what's what's one of your favorite restaurants in new york city oh wow okay can i give you an honest answer i actually don't eat out and i was in in new york city ah so do you cook i mostly assemble oh. <laughs> i know this sounds terrible let's see one of my i mean i really okay when i'm in new york i work every night like we have seven shows a week so I get to the, I, I leave my apartment usually at, if we have a 7.30 show, I try to leave my apartment by 5.30 for the commute, mm -hmm. take the subway. And so I'll usually, I don't want to eat too much before I perform. So I'll have like some, something that I'll make or assemble back in my apartment and I'll come home and then I'll have a snack. Well, and so, then I mean, afterwards it's too late. So and afterwards it's pretty late. So then, then when you're done, you're on a plane back to Iowa city. Exactly. So I really, really do not eat out. And I, and I keep saying Iowa city in New York, I, but I need to fix that. Well, I'm sure you'll, you'll have some more time when you, you're not so rushed and running back and forth. Yeah. So. Well, Hannah, <laughs> we appreciate your insights and your dreams and all the great things that you're doing to, um, touch all these young people's hearts. And um, just another plug, <laughs> hannahholman.com. Cello, Hannah Holman Ch Cello. Yeah, hannahholmancello.com <laughs> and the deanery. Um, she's doing great things and we, uh, we appreciate it. And thank you so much. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on the Ampex podcast. 
Hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure not to miss future episodes and please rate the show wherever you get your podcast. Thanks to our awesome production team, Lindsay Soderberg, social and digital marketing, Taylor Higgins, video production, and Seth Nielsen, marketing. See you next time.